All right, as I would say, most of you know or have heard about the uh, tornadoes that passed through western Kentucky uh, this past week. Um, the devastation is unreal. The tornado was on the ground for over 220 miles. Uh, several people have lost their lives. The damage is unbelievable. And so <clears throat> I just wanted to let you guys know that as a church, we give to something called Send Relief. And, and what happens is they'll make sure they get water and buses of stuff to the people that need it most. And then there's also manpower that comes and helps clean out debris, put up tarps, get people to where they need to be that need shelter. And so uh, we gave financially as a church to Sin Relief in Kentucky. And it's a massive movement. But that's the neat part about being connected with churches. We're able to do that. But right now what I want us to do as a family, I want us to pray for our brothers and sisters in western Kentucky. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then uh, I'll, I'll give us a little bit of a moment, and then I'll close this time in prayer, okay? So western Kentucky, we're talking Mayfield, Bowling Green, uh, western Kentucky, Grace County. All right, let's pray. Father, in the moments of despair, you are the God that brings hope. So, Father, I pray that you are with the families that have experienced loss, that you bring comfort and peace the way that only you can bring peace to families that have lost loved ones. I pray that you restore the stuff that the tornado has taken. I pray that you protect and provide for the families that lost everything. And, Father, I pray that your church in western Kentucky and your church around the globe Use this time to bring glory to you and how we love our neighbors. And so, Father, I pray that you move. I pray that you strengthen uh, the people in this area. I pray that you heal and bring life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Today we're continuing our sermon series, Through the Life of David. This will be the last sermon in this series, and it's a beeline to Christ. And this is the, the neat part. David leads us to Jesus, and we're going to see how today. So, anybody have any guesses, <clears throat> the election, 2020, how much money was spent with campaigning, commercials, advertising on that election? Okay. A billion. $10 billion. That's the closest. $14.4 billion. Now, we're not just talking the president, we're talking governors and senators and all that stuff. Billions of dollars. Now, here's the deal. Not only that, but you see the passion at which people pursue a candidate. People that won't say anything about Jesus on social media, you'll know who they're supporting politically. And I think it shows a deep longing that we all have. A longing for a king that can bring justice, a king that will rule with righteousness king that will provide for his people. And it's funny, no matter which candidate you buy into, they promise similar things. And yet only Jesus can deliver. And as a church, that's who we pursue. And as a people, that's who we wait for. So I want you to see this with fresh eyes. Most of you have heard the Christmas story. My prayer is that that never grows dull in your heart what is happening in that moment. Manger scene after manger scene, you see a baby in a manger 
realize that's the King of kings and Lord of lords who will come back for his people. And so we're going to dig in and we're going to try to get through Genesis to Revelation and show how the promise given to David is fulfilled in Jesus and still affects you and I today. All right, so we're talking redemptive history. And what we mean by redemptive history, there's an overarching theme in our lives that we're separated from God, even though we were created for God. And we see throughout history God working His redemption, Him pursuing His people, redeeming a people from being lost to having fellowship with their God. And we see how Christ bridges the gap. And we see this all throughout. But then there's a book called Revelation that shows the consummation, the kingdom's coming. It's already, but not yet. We still have to deal with death and sin and loss. But there's a day coming when the kingdom has come is coming again. And that day we are eagerly awaiting. So let's start all the way back in Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, you have this promise. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Perfection. They do not want anything. They have everything. They experience the fellowship of God in the presence of God. Every tree they can eat of except for one. And Satan comes and leads them to this tree and says, hey, taste and eat. This is good stuff. And in the moment they rebel, sin enters a picture and from that moment on, you see a God who has a plan for redemption. So, verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And so, ever since that promise given to our first parents, Adam and Eve, we've been waiting for a son that would crush Satan. The problem is, everyone born since then was crushed by Satan couldn't defeat sin, couldn't defeat death, until one man came. And so we see God's still at work. He gives this promise. There's someone coming who will crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 12, 1-3, through 3, there's a promise given to Abram. So we're talking thousands of years ago. But to Abram he said, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we see that God is working His redemptive plan through a family with Abraham and his descendants. And then Abraham has a son who has a son who eventually becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we get to God's promise to David. 2 Samuel 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel Chapter 7, and we're going to start with the first verse. This is a loaded chapter. Because here you think, you see, David wants to do something for God, and God says, I don't need you to do anything for me. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something for you that is bigger and better than you can imagine. And I want you to see this, how God uses His people for His glory. And so check this out, verse 1. When the king had settled in his, into his palace... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. The king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in this cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. 
Are you to build a house for me to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. And all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. You see who, how God reminds David of who he is? David, I don't need your help. You desperately need me. From the pasture to the palace, this is what God is doing. So he goes on. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all of your enemies before you, I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. What did David start out by saying? He was going to make a house for who? For God. And God says, no. As a matter of fact, I'm making the house for you. Let's see what he promises. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, another way, when you die, when you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant. Now remember, you have to reflect back 3.15 from Genesis. There's someone coming who will crush the serpent. Here, there's another descendant coming who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from more morals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure forever and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all of these words and this entire vision to David. And so there's a promise coming of a king who will reign forever and ever. And part of this promise is fulfilled in the life of David's son Solomon. Solomon builds a temple, but Solomon doesn't last, and the temple doesn't last. Someone greater than Solomon is needed, and something better than the temple is needed. And so you see that part of this prophecy, part of this promise fulfilled in Solomon, disciplined for his wrongdoing, Solomon, as wise as he was, messed up just like David. And that was the problem with David's sons. There'd be a king and he'd mess up, and then another king and he'd mess up, and another king and he'd mess up. And every king, no matter how good or how bad, also met the grave. Could not defeat death. A greater king... Was needed, And then I want us to see David's response. So you have this promise given to David. Right? There's this promise given to David. Now here is what I'm asking for you to do. God has also promised us some things. And what happens is when you remember the promise, you reflect in praise. And so David's response from hearing the word of God is to praise and offer this prayer of thanksgiving to God. 
And I think sometimes our worship of God is so cold because we're so detached from the promises of God. Promises like, I am with you to the very end of the age. That's a promise from Jesus to His people that's true for you and for me. Promise that He's working for our good and His glory as a promise from God to us. Like this is personal. Our God is real. He's alive and He makes promises to His people and He always keeps His promise. And as we we reflect on His promise, the heart reflex is to praise God. And so if there's a lack of praise, my guess is we're not looking at the promises that God has given us. The people of God have been promised a lot of things. And our God has accomplished so much. And our affection for our Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, should be infinitely more than anything this world has to offer. And so I want you to hear how David responds when he's given this promise. When King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, he said, Who am I, Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you. It wasn't hard for God to do this. For David, from the pastor to the... That's not a big deal. For all the enemies to be subject to David, that wasn't tough for God to do. And he keeps going. For you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God, because your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. And there is no God beside you. As all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself. To make a name for himself and to perform them great and awesome acts. Driving out nations and their gods before you. A people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people, Israel. To your own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And then we'll skip down to verse 29. Now please bless your servant's house so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken and with you blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. So there's a promise given to David that someone will come in his line that will rule forever. His kingdom will know no end. But you know how God accomplishes it? It's in a way I don't think David could have imagined. So David dies and Solomon comes and son after son come and go. You have good kings like King Jehoshaphat and Azariah, Hezekiah and Josiah, but they soon too pass away. And then there's some bad kings that come and lead God's people away from God. And then God raises up a king from Babylon that comes to Israel, that defeats the kings, that takes David's line prisoner. And captive, you've heard of King Nebuchadnezzar. Three times he leads companies of exiles away to a foreign land. And on the third time, he destroys the temple that Solomon built. And the walls are in shambles. The city is gone. And while the people are in exile, they go back to this promise that was given to David. And they start to say, God can't keep his promise. Because there's no one on the throne from David. And then that is where you see prophets, mouthpieces for God like Jeremiah and Isaiah step up to the plate and listen to their words. Jeremiah 33, 14-17 Look, the days are coming. Now remember, 
Jeremiah is in captivity, faraway land. It's not going well for God's people. There is no king and there is no kingdom for him. And yet he speaks truth. He says, hey, God will keep his promise. Listen to what he says. He reminds them of the promise. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to sprout out for David. And he will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is what she will be named. The Lord is our righteousness. Isn't that an interesting truth? The branch that is coming, the king who will rescue, the name of this activity will be the Lord is our righteousness. That's speaking of Jesus. If you want in the kingdom, you've got to have the righteousness of the king. And that's freely given. If you depend on yourself, you won't make it to the kingdom. But if you allow the king to be your righteousness, you get in. Jeremiah goes on in verse 19 and 21. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night cease to come at the regular time, then also my covenant with my servant David will be broken. If that could happen, then he would not have a son reigning on his throne. I love this passage right here. Nothing's going right for God's people. And God gives them a reminder every day that the sun comes up and that the sun sets. He goes, if that ever not happens, then maybe there won't be a king from David's line coming. But every day that the sun rises and the sun sets, even though the people are far from the land and distant from the promise, they're reminded God will keep his promise. There's a king, king coming and a kingdom who will know no end. Then we keep reading. You have Isaiah. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This passage is almost covered every Christmas. You have heard it, but I want you to hear it in light of the promise given to David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his greatness, of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God will do what he promises. And I think that's fascinating how Jesus will reign and rule with righteousness and ensuring justice. Our people are hungry for that. And the world offers a a counterfeit justice and a counterfeit righteousness. And I, I think I can give this example. It's, it's not a perfect illustration. But if Camden lost a tooth this past week, right? Now she knows, all right, I think we're good in here. She knows the tooth fairy is not real. But she still expects money to be under her pillow. Now, let's say Julianne and I were feeling generous and we put a $10 bill underneath that pillow. She would say, that's a ton of money, right? Now, if you and I try to buy dinner for the family, we know $10 won't make it. Not that much money. Her value of money and our value of money is a little bit different in what's a lot and what's not, and what's a good salary and what's not. 
Now, I want you to think about this. Your view of righteousness compared to a God who knows everything and His view of perfect righteousness is going to be a bigger difference than my view and Camden's view of money. And what's happening in our world today is a lot of people think they know what is right and what is wrong, and we have no idea. And so for me, what I've decided to do with my life when I try to judge right and wrong, I line it up to the Word of God. Because I know God never misses a step. His Word doesn't change. It's true forever and ever. As sure as the sun rises and the sun sets. This Word's not passing away. God's character is not changing. And here's the awesome news. David, even though considered to be the greatest king in Israel's history, ruled and ensured peace by taking lives. And as a matter of fact, he fell taking one of his own men's lives. Uriah. We talked about that last week. Isn't it an interesting thing that the king that would come from David ensures, ensures peace and gives righteousness not through taking lives, but through laying his life down. That's the type of king we serve. That's the type of king that is inviting you to come. That's the king we're waiting for. It's what your heart's longing for. And so we keep reading with this promise from Isaiah, this, this king's coming. You guys know when David ruled? David's uh, historical books ruled from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. Now, I don't know about you. I would say the, the greatest earthly promise I've made is to Julianne, right? And that was back in 2004. We've kept my promise for 18 years to be her husband, to be faithful to her. And God willing, let's say both of us live to 100. I'm not doing the math, but let's say it's almost 80 years. That's a long time, right? The people of God waited almost a thousand years for God to keep his promise. Can you imagine if you were in exile and someone brought up, yeah, but we got good news. Remember, remember what they said to David 400 years ago, someone's coming. I imagine they would look at you and laugh. Did you know Jesus is coming back and that promise now is about 2,000 years old? And I think sometimes our people are wondering, like, how can I have hope in that? Is Jesus coming back? Is he really going to do what he said? And David reminds us that when God makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And so if you get to Matthew, you start out with something called a genealogy. Now, we're not going to read that. But you can see in this genealogy, you go from Abraham to David. So Abraham has a baby who has a baby who has a son who has a son who eventually gets to David. And then David has a son and you get to the Babylonian exile where they're taken in captive. But guess what happens? God's people and David's line continue. They're not ruling a people, but David's sons still getting married, still having kids. And eventually it comes all the way down to Joseph who has a son. It's an adoptive son with Mary. And I want you to hear about his name. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And then in Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from sins, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is the son of David, 
God keeping his promises. I think sometimes we miss out on this baby. Um, some of you guys have seen, uh, I think it's Talladega Nights, where uh, they have this scene where they're praying, and Will Ferrell goes, I like to pray, or it might be the other guy driving, I like to pray to baby Jesus, right? Whatever, inch long, however much a baby weighs. And it's belittling Jesus, right? And, and I get it's a comedy, but I want us to see this. So many times we see Jesus in the manger that we miss the magnitude of this moment. Millions of people have waited for this to come true. And finally, God moves. And the baby that was promised is delivered for about 2,000 years ago. And many people miss out who it is. The Pharisees asked, or actually it was Jesus, asked them a question. So whose son is the Messiah? Right? He's asking them a question because the Pharisees never recognized Jesus as Lord. And if you miss out on the son of David, you miss out on the kingdom. You miss out on the promises. There is no redemption for those outside of the kingdom. And they missed out and they said, well, it's David's son. And then Jesus asked him, well, why does he say to the son that is to come, David's descendant, Lord, sit at my foot as I make your enemies a footstool? He goes, why did he call him, if he's a son, why did he call him Lord? Because David understood this. He needed someone greater than himself to come and rescue himself. And the Pharisees couldn't answer him that. They refused to call Jesus the Son of God. They could understand, yes, you're in the line of David, whatever. There's a lot of people that have been in the line of David. You see that with the genealogy. But there's only one that was nailed to a cross and was buried and three days later rose from the grave. And the Pharisees missed that, and millions of people are missing that today. Every knee will one day bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what makes Christmas, that time of anticipation, where you're waiting for Christmas presents that are usually opened on Christmas Day, making that finally Christmas is here and there's this time of celebration. That's what's happening here in Matthew 1. Year after year, decade after decade, Jesus is here. And it should be a time of celebration, and yet they crucify him. The king, whose reign is forever, whose kingdom is forever, is now dead. But you want to know what is awesome about Jesus? Unlike David and Jehoshaphat and Solomon, who have been buried and those guys aren't around walking the earth anymore, Jesus, three days later, busts out of the grave and is hanging out with his disciples, eating breakfast with them, teaching them, walking around with them. And for 40 days, he's showing them that, hey, I have conquered the grave. I have conquered the death. My reign is forever. My kingdom will know no end. And then he ascends to heaven. But that's not the last time we hear from Jesus. Did you know that? If you go to Revelation 19, 11 through 16, you get a different picture. So you have this picture of baby Jesus at Christmas. But I want you to see this picture. This is who Jesus is now. Right? He's reigning and ruling right now, sitting at the Father's right hand, waiting for Him to send Him back. And this is what happens when He comes back. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, 
There was a white horse, its rider called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except him. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on a white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the picture of the glorious Jesus who is returning for his people. And he deals with Satan and the Antichrist and all of the people that have gathered against God's people. And in a second, they're done. They're gone. Their fate is decided. They're cast into what the Bible calls the lake of fire. And I want you to see this. When you think of Armageddon being this great battle, it's not. It's not a close war. Jesus isn't desperate for more soldiers and a better military. It reminds me of the disciples in the boat. We're talking fishermen that know the seas. They're terrified by the storm. Jesus is still sleeping in the bottom. They wake him up. He says a couple of words. Peace, be still. And the wind stops and the waves still. It wasn't a struggle. Jesus didn't have to work real hard. He had to speak. It reminds me of the time he goes to a funeral of a guy that had been in the tomb for four days. And it wasn't there, he wasn't there to put flowers around the tombstone. He was there to call a dead man to get up and get out. And all he says is, Lazarus, come out. And it wasn't a struggle. He didn't have to work real hard. All he had to do was speak. And so when you get this picture of Jesus, and he said he had a sword coming from his mouth to judge the nations, all he does is speak, and the enemies are done. You got to understand, Jesus is upholding and sustaining the universe by his nail scarred hands. The breath that we have in our lungs is because Jesus is sustaining the universe. That's the type of king that we have. That's the type of king that came and died for you and for me. And this is what makes Revelation 21 and 22 so magnificent. Last two chapters in the Bible. Last two chapters in the Bible. In chapter 21, verse 5, it says, Then he want the one seated on the throne. Who's the one seated on the throne? Jesus. Said, look, I am making everything new. Man, that's the type of king I need. That's the type of king I knew. Uh, yesterday, we get out of the, the truck, and I don't know if it was Camden or Balin, but she goes, Dad, you need a hat. I go, I'm going inside, Camden. I don't, I don't, I don't need a hat. She's like, yeah, but Dad, everybody's going to see your white hair. Hey, white's better than no hair, I think. I think, getting old. I'm going to need to be made new. Hey, and all of us. But you know what? The, the physical deterioration of my body is nothing compared to what I long for spiritually. I still have to fight and deal and battle with sin. And while I'm saved, one day I'll be saved eternally. And while I'm forgiven, one day I'll stand in front of the king. And He's making all things new. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And we're promised, and this is the verse, Demarcus, you're memorizing. Those in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I long for that day. And the one seated on the throne, 
has given us a promise. And then you get to Revelation 22. And this is an awesome promise. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest to these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the sin of David, the bright and morning star. Isn't it interesting that Jesus himself shows that he's the promise that was given to David about 3,000 years ago now. And I don't know when he's returning and I don't know when that will happen, but the promise is nonetheless true. And this is the invitation. Verse 20, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming soon. Now, here's the problem. God in time is different than you and I in time. A day is a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is a day to God. He's outside. He's bigger than time. But He is coming soon for His people. And so there's two things I want us to respond to with this message. The first one is this, come now to the son of David. Come now to the son of David. If you do not know the king, know him today. Don't miss this. The God who keeps his promise is promising these things to redeem a people. We're in bondage to sin. We are in bondage to death. And Jesus comes to free us, to buy back a people for himself. And he purchases that with the cross. It's an amazing thing. Revelation 22, 17 says, Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. You want in the kingdom? Come to Jesus. It's free. It's not cheap, but it is free. We see, and I won't go through each one of these, but in Matthew 9, 12, 15, and 20, there are people that cry out to Jesus and refer to him as the son of David. Son of David, son of David, son of David. And you want to know all of those people have the same plea. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on us. And each time, guess what happens? Jesus hears them and gives to them what they are asking for. Have you ever gone to the Son of David? Have you ever bowed to Jesus and asked Him for mercy? Because you know, and, and I know, all of us in the room have rebelled against the King. Our sins separated us from the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet He invites you to come. You can have mercy. You just have to ask. Come today. We move on. Colossians 2, 13 and 15. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Because I think this is very important. It says, When you were dead in trespasses, He made you alive with Him and forgave us all of our trespasses. You were dead, but God made us alive. How did He do that? He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us. It was taken away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus. That reminds me of that promise that was given in 1 Samuel, where the people are longing for this king that will go out and fight the battles for them. That's exactly what Jesus just did. Do you see how he disarmed and put to disgrace the rulers and authorities of this world? 
that are seeking you to rebel against the king, to turn away from God. God triumphs over them in Jesus. Your debt, my debt, wages of sin is death, what I owed, covered because it was nailed to the cross. The blood Christ poured out covers my sin, covers my debt. And the righteousness I now have has been given to me by the king I serve. And it's given to anybody who asks. Have you ever asked for mercy from the son of David? And then secondly, live in light of the return of the son of God. Live in light of the return of the son of God. This changes how you do your day to day. Kingdom people should be busy doing the business of the king. God has given us a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He's with us to the end of the age. And then we're to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're given a mission to do. Love your neighbor. Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the list goes on and on and on of what God's people should be doing. And in our obedience to the king, we reflect the kingdom that is coming and the king that is returning. One guy put it this way, our witness to the world should leave them saying, wow, what great things God has done for them. That's exactly what David did. Right? When they looked at the life of David, they said, man, you don't want to mess with David's God. Goes on, J.D. Greer is the one quoting this. He says, we are trophies, work of art to demonstrate God's saving power. No one admires a trophy for having done something great. They recognize that the trophy represents someone great. Our lives are supposed to burn brightly with evidence of God's greatness. The fire to do in the Christian life comes only from being soaked in the fuel of what He has done. When you remember what the King has done for us, it's easy to live for the glory of the King. All right, let me see these medals, fellas. Hey, we have two medal recipients. Now, I will say these medals are pretty cool, right? Silver and bronze wrestling medal. Now, there's nothing special, though, about this award. It points to, they're not, right? <laughs> nothing special about this. You could probably go and buy this about $30, $40. But what does it point to? points to a special effort, points to an achievement, points to the person who won this. And, and you see, this is what Jesus should be doing in our lives. This is what people who belong to the king should do. They're not special about you and I, but we should be reflecting the one who did something special. We're God's trophies on display for God's glory. And so many people in our world don't get that idea. So many people think, man, I'm glorious. Life's about me. I should be thought of a lot by other people. I should be paid a lot of money because life is important to me. We're just trophies displaying off the greatness of God. And I'll close with this. This week is final exam week. Right? Friday is the end of the grading period. And you want to know what? An amazing thing happened this past week, Thursday and Friday about. Students started to pick up the pace, turning in missing assignments. I had guys who slept all class most of the second quarter all of a sudden wake up 
I saw their faces and their eyeballs open, and they were typing away on their computers. I had no idea they had that ability. It's amazing how many bell works were turned in this past week. How many independent works? There's a deadline coming, and it affects how they do their daily life. A future event is determining their behavior right now. Now, Jesus said he's coming back. And for you and I, it's been 2,000 years. That's a long time. But as the people of God, what we know from history is when God gives a promise, he keeps a promise. And when Jesus returns, I want to be found faithful, living for the king. And I cannot wait to be in the kingdom that lasts forever. That should change how we do our daily lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for gathering us together here this morning. Father, I pray that if anyone here does not know you as the King of kings and Lord of lords, I pray that today they run to you and ask for your mercy because you are a merciful and gracious God. And then, Father, I pray for those of us who know you as Lord. I pray that we live in light of your promised return. I pray that we think about it often and that that changes how we do things. I pray for the fathers who know that you're returning, that we'll love our children well, love our wives well, that we lead our families to love you more and more each day, that we teach them how to hope in the promises of God. I pray for our wives and our moms, that they love you more and more each day, that they find their hope in you, that you give them the patience to help with children and lead them in the way of everlasting, that they serve a king who is returning. I pray for our kids that they're respectful and honor of the authorities that you've put in place, but ultimately that they serve the authority of the king who is returning. Father, I pray that you move in a way in our community and in our church so that we never forget your promises. Lord, that's where our joy should be found. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.